Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20 which you can find in the New Testament section of our Bibles on page 4 or on the screen. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Matthew 5, verse 13. Crowds followed Jesus. He went up a mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him. Then Jesus taught them, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the earth. A city built on a hill can not be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My goal in the teaching series that we started was to remind us, to remind us that the call to discipleship is a call to love God with the best of our minds, that the Christian faith is a thinking faith. And I say that because how we think and what we believe will indeed shape how we live. The Christian faith is a thinking faith, and what we think and what we believe will shape how we live. I also tried to have us think about, as we went through the month of January, that the call to follow Jesus is very disruptive. It's a call, it's an invitation from Jesus. And if you read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you'll notice that one of the first messages that Jesus preached as he went out, he said, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here. He calls us. He called them, he calls us to repent of our sins, to turn from the direction in which our lives seem to be going and to turn in his direction and to join his kingdom, to join his movement, and to give our lives to him. 
I also said last month that Jesus wants us to know, and we need to hear this over and over again, that we didn't choose him. Left up to us, we wouldn't choose him, and we didn't choose him, but he came to us. And he chose you, and he chose me, and he chose us in love. And friends, when we begin to understand that, that we belong to Christ, that Christ is our Savior, we're on our way. We're on our way. And so for the Sundays of February, we're going to shift our focus from the mind to the heart, following Jesus with the heart. And this is so important, the best way to respond to God The best way to respond to God's love is to do what the Lord says in the book of Deuteronomy, what the Lord says in the book of Leviticus, what Jesus says throughout the gospel, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. We have a lot to do in the church to help each other do that. We have a lot of programs. We have a lot of great activities but we need to do a better job of helping each other to do the most important thing. The most important thing that you and I could ever do is to live a life of love and to love God and to love people. And so when we talk about the heart, of course, that's code language for emotion. Yeah, we're Presbyterians, but emotion. I see you at the ball game. I see you at the Bears game. Emotion, passion, soul, affection. I I, I like to think of it as want to or desire. And the verse before you, and there's a verse I want you guys to show for me from Matthew 13. This really, to me, captures what it means to love God with the heart. It says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field which someone found out and hid. And then I love this line. And then in his joy, in his unbridled passion, in this outlandish gladness, runs home, sells all that this person possesses, and buys the field because the treasure is in the field. No manipulation. Nobody's being forced. These actions spring from within. And I ask you and I ask myself, do we have that joy? Is Jesus our treasure? Do we delight in him? And so today's reading then describes followers of Jesus as people who bear witness to God's faithfulness. They bear witness to God's faithfulness through mission. And I use that word not in the way we understand it, but through the mission of Jesus, through witness about Jesus, and through worship. The disciples are people who are in the world. Jesus places them in the world 
but he also calls them to be in contrast, be a contrast community, as John Stott likes to call it, a contrast community. And their values are different from the world. They're in the world, but their values are contrast to the values of the world. So I want you to bear with me. We're going to read parts of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to begin the message of Jesus by starting at the end of the sermon. And you say, well, Pastor Ray, we didn't read the end of the sermon, I know. Why start with the end of the sermon? Because the end gives us the code, the clue to how to read the sermon. The mistake we, read, we make when we read the whole Sermon on the Mount, we feel guilty, we feel crushed, we feel there's no way I can live this way. But if you read the end of the sermon, you begin to understand how to understand. I would say to you that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with a call to action. And he says, those who don't do what I say, well, they're being foolish. The entire sermon can be summed up in one question. Will you follow me? May I say that again? The entire Sermon on the Mount, including today's reading, could be summed up in one question. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? So let's, let's just hear the ending to the Sermon on the Mount. Greatest sermon ever preached. This is the end now. This is, he's summing everything up. And he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man, will be like a wise woman who built his or her house on the rock. And you see this picture of a house on the rock. And then the rain fell. By the way, that's a house that was built on a rock in Jamaica. No, I'm serious. So I'm showing off. But that house was built on the rock. The rain fell. The floods came. The hurricanes came. Beat on that house. But it didn't fall. Why? Well, it was well built, but it was built on the rock. And then Jesus continues, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish person who built his house on sand. And we saw a lot of those homes in Florida a few months ago that was pummeled by the wind and the rain and the hurricane, built on sand, and many of these houses were falling. The rain came, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell. It fell. It fell with a great fall. People lost a lot of money. And when Jesus has finished saying these things, the people were astounded. His teaching had a different authority. So I'm saying to you, if you understand the trajectory of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll understand today's reading. The call to action this morning is a call to love God and to love people. How do we love God? How do we love people? By embracing our identity. And what is our identity? Identity is very clear. Jesus says, you all, you all are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And if you're willing to embrace those metaphors, if you're willing to embrace them, to live them out in our daily living, then you will begin to love God and you'll begin to love people. You say, well, why salt? And we don't have the time to fully explore all of that, but you could read through parts of the Old Testament. You'll see where salt was used as a covenant. Salt was, salt was used as a way to reach an agreement. Salt was used to purify and preserve meat. Salt was used to, as, as, as a salary. I wonder how many of you know that the word salary comes from a Latin word that means salarium. 
And the Roman soldiers back in that day would often receive their wages with salt. Salt was precious. And so I've heard my family, my parents talk about that, that, that man, he's a salt of the earth. That woman, is a, she's a salt of the earth. And you wonder, what do they mean by that? Well, they're describing someone who is solid, someone who's honest, stable, reliable, good. Sometimes we say, that person is worth their salt. We're describing somebody who does a good job. So salt is important. You are important, is what Jesus is saying. You are valuable to Jesus' mission in the world. And so Jesus calls his disciples the salt of the earth, the light of the world, that we are like a city set on a hill. Like salt is to taste, light is to sight. And when the light went off, this room was dark, and the kids thought, yeah, if we came, we would think church was canceled. And that's a parable all in its own. The light, the salt. And we love God and we love people when we function in the world as salt and light. And there is something that salt and light have in common that you need to hear. And that is they give and they expend themselves. They're the opposite of the kind of religion that turns in on itself. That kind of empty religiosity that it's just a thing we do on Sunday. It has no relevance to our lives for the rest of the week. That kind of religion that turns the church into sort of a business enterprise, and that's about it. No, this call to be salt and light, it, it turns out into the world, and it gives itself away and salt and light are hard to miss. It's plain for all to see. And Jesus is really saying that if you love God, if you love people, you're going to be involved in stemming the social decay and the darkness of evil that's all around us. Salt and light influences everything in its proximity. And that's why Jesus says, let your light shine. You are the salt of the earth. Let your light shine so people may see. You've got to be out there. You've got to share it. You've got to let it go. There's no room for quiet Christianity. And some people argue that what these metaphors are all about, it's proclamation, that the salt and the light represent proclamation of gospel truth. We've got to let it out because people need to see and know that there is a God. But Jesus also gives a very powerful warning about the dangers of diminished influence. Jesus says salt can lose its saltiness. Salt can become contaminated with impurities. And when that happens, Jesus says it's good for nothing it's to be thrown out into the street and people will trample all over it. And so you think about the idea of an insipid, bland Jesus follower, and you're talking about a contradiction in terms. And then light can also be diminished. Jesus says, no one lights a lamp, put it on a stand, and then covers it up. Who does that? And yet, you look at the history of our church, and I use the Big C Church 
And you look at the history of Jesus' church in the world, it has a checkered history. And it has this tendency to conform. You look at the church in Germany in the 1940s, the church lost its saltiness, the church covered its light, and then conformed to the regime. That's the history of the church. You look at the history of the church during, during the 17th and 18th century and how the church, through their lens, viewed people from the African continent. They covered the light. They contaminated their salt. And they conformed to the big machinery of slavery. We're called to be a counterculture, and I know that's hard. And if you read the chapter before chapter 5, you'll notice actually the end of chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are you when men speak ill of you and persecute you and throw you into jail. Jesus says, rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. When you choose to be out front and live as salt and light, to live the Beatitudes, live the character of the Beatitudes, you will experience blowback. You will experience being canceled. You will experience being called every name in the book because you're standing up as salt and light. So I have a question for you. How many of us have seen the wonderful, I call it, the wonderful movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Have you ever seen that movie before? Some of you may never, have never seen it before. How many of you watch this movie at Christmas time? Okay. So you got a few weirdos in the room like me, because every Christmas in our home, it's like it's not Christmas until we see It's a Wonderful Life. This film celebrates the, I call it the, the virtues of a guy by the name of George Bailey. He and his family owned this very small building and loan institution that was helping family after family after family find their way on the verge of going into the Great Depression, this, this little institution was doing so much for so many. But one day trouble came into this organization when George's absent-minded uncle misplaced $8,000. Now we're talking about like the era of the early 20s. Losing $8,000 is a lot of money. And they couldn't find it. And George realized that I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to go to jail. And he got so discouraged, he started saying, I wish I had never been born. Do you remember that? When, for those of you who, are, who know the lines of the movie, you remember that? He said, I wish I had never been born. And then enter this angel who's trying to get his wings, Clarence Oddbody. And he comes to George. And he decides to show George what the world would look like if indeed George had never been born. And he shows him his mother. And George's mother is a withered widow running a dilapidated boarding house. He shows him his Uncle Billy. His Uncle Billy is an in an insane asylum. He shows him his wife. And his wife, Mary, is a, is a spinster. She never married. She's a librarian. He shows him Bedford Falls. Beautiful Bedford Falls is now called Pottersville. This once quaint 
clean little village is now instead a dark city of bars and honky-tonks and strip joints and promiscuity. He even showed him Bailey Park, that subdivision of homes that George had the vision to build for working-class families so they didn't have to live in Mr. Potter's dilapidated rentals. What was Bailey Park is now a graveyard filled with gravestones and called Potter's Field. And George looked at the angel and said, why are you showing me all these things? And the angel responds, don't you understand? It's because you were not born. You've been given a great gift. You've been given a great gift, George. He says it in that way. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. And without George Bailey's presence to stave off the evil influence of Henry F. Potter, Bedford Falls fell into decay and ruin and degradation. Telling all that to say, I'm telling you all that to say, imagine if Christ had not been born, there would be no church. And imagine if there is no church, there would be no Christians living as salt and light in the world and changing the order. Years ago, I came across a book written by a professor who at the time was teaching at the University of Washington. He was an atheist, but he was also a sociologist of religion, and his expertise was to write about the history of religion. And he wrote and studied Christianity. He was baffled. Why is it this little movement just kept growing, just kept changing, just kept evolving, just kept reaching the world. So he wrote the book, Rodney Stark wrote the book, The Rise of Christianity, how the obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world. Writing that book changed his life, and he eventually left the University of Washington and taught for the rest of his life. He died just last year at Baylor University. Let me just quote a few lines from you before we come to the communion table. Stark says that the incredible growth and spread of Christianity were because it offered more to people than any of its competitors. I've heard that. When I talk to some of the refugee families, when I listen to some of the stories from Carol, I hear this over again, over and over again. First prayers. People in need, go to first prayers. Stark argued, listen to this, that the rapid growth of the church was in large part due to how Christians treated women. If you know anything about the Greco-Roman world and how women and children were treated, you'll understand why that was like a bright light. That was real salt coming into the culture. Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery and the chaos and the fear and the brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. It revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing new forms and kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered 
charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers and outsiders, Christianity offered an immediate basis for community called the church. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded use of the word family. To cities torn by violent and racial and ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics and fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective medical and nursing services. Imagine if the church in the first century had compromised its salt and covered its light, what would they have to offer to the world? Imagine the decisions that we will have to continue to make. Will we be the church of Jesus Christ, or are we going to bend and pretzel ourselves so as to fit in with the world? If we lose our saltiness, what good is the church? If we cover the light in the midst of the darkness, what good is the church? There's a question that I've been asking myself, and I have it on the screen for you to look at. I ask this question on a regular basis. You've heard it asked before that if the church closed its doors tomorrow, would anyone in this community notice? If the church closed, all the churches in Evanston closed its doors tomorrow, would Evanstonian care? And I'm here to tell you, yes, they would. There would be a massive investigation as to why one of the biggest movements in America that is providing help and support and love and care and deliverance and healing, where did those people go? But I'm telling you, friends, we cannot sit on our laurels. We cannot. Jesus calls us to be light and to be salt. And if and when we do that, we will be loving God and loving our neighbor. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen.